2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah wrote to God's people, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. The truth is there's only one thing that can ever separate you from God, and that is your own sin. Other people cannot separate you from God. This world cannot separate you from God. Other religions cannot separate you from God. In fact, the devil himself cannot separate you from God. For all of the power in heaven and on this earth and in hell below, there is only one person who has been granted the ability by God to keep you separated from him, and that is you. The fact of the matter is, you are as close to God in your life right now as you want to be. Right? It, is, it isn't God who keeps us from being close to him. Jesus' brother James said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James 4.8. The apostle Paul said, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 and 39. He told Timothy that it was God's desire for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. So even in our sin, God still loves us and is always ready for us to come to him in humble repentance because he wants to be in relationship with us. So clearly it isn't God preventing that from happening. And it isn't the enemy of our souls, by the way. It isn't the devil who separates us from God either. Jesus said, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, Luke 10, 19. The devil cannot keep you from God. You see, the only person who bears the responsibility for you being separated from God is you. Immediately after James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, his very next statement is, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, the only thing that is keeping you from drawing near to God is your own sin, which you have control over, because sin is always a choice. In fact, in one of the most misinterpreted passages in all of biblical scripture, the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And people interpret this passage all of the time to mean that God promises to never give us more in this life than we can handle. Baloney. Just ask a parent who's lost a child. That is not at all what Paul is saying here. The fact is, we are most certainly given far more than we can handle at times in this life. 
which is one of the reasons we need Jesus. Because there's nothing in this life that he cannot handle. So we look to him, not to ourselves, at those times in our lives when we're facing more than we can handle. Okay, what Paul's actually saying here is that because God is so faithful, we will never be put in a situation in this life where our only option in response to that situation is to sin. Because he always provides a way of escape without us having to sin. Because sin is always, it is always a choice. We're never forced to sin. In fact, we have power over sin. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, act like who you are, your members to God. Present them as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Sin is always a choice that we make and it separates us from God. So why then, why then do we willingly choose to sin? Right, if sin is bad for us, if sin weighs us down, if sin separates us from God, then why do we willingly choose to sin? Well, the truth is, most believers probably don't wake up in the morning and decide to disobey God that day. Typically, there's a progression that occurs over a period of time from temptation to consideration to transgression. And yet all along that progression, at any point along the way, we as Christians have the authority to frustrate evil, to deny our own sinful nature, to resist the enemy. And when you do that, according to James, the enemy will flee from you, James 4-7. So why don't we? Why don't we always resist the enemy? Why don't we always deny ourselves? Why don't we always deny our own sinful nature? And just to be clear here, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. Jesus took care of every one of them on the cross. Every sin you've ever committed and every sin you are ever going to commit was atoned for once for all through his shed blood on the cross which means that we are righteous in Christ, but not yet perfected until the day of redemption, which means we still sin. We still transgress his word. We still fail and falter. And every time we do, there's an effect on how we are able to relate to God in that moment. And I'm talking about Christians. The apostle Peter wrote to Christians, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. He's talking to Christians. So that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. In other words, your sin can actually hinder your prayers. After describing a long list of sins, the Apostle Paul wrote, to Christians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. In other words, your sin can actually grieve the Holy Spirit within you. In fact, about himself, the Apostle Paul wrote to other Christians, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This is the Apostle Paul. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Romans 7, 15 through 20. Obviously, as Christians, we still struggle with sin, and there's a very real effect that that sin has on how we're able to relate to God, which is why Peter said, again, to Christians, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, First Peter 1.15, because we cannot draw near to God through sin. No, sin separates us from God. By the way, that is not legalism. That is love. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15, because obeying the commands of God is one of the ways that we show our love for him. So why then do we keep on sinning? Well, ultimately, it's because we allow ourselves to believe a lie, which we're going to talk about in the second half of this two-part message, but it doesn't start there. No, it, it starts with something much simpler and yet far more veiled than that, as we'll see in our story today as we continue working our way through the history of creation. So let's pick up the story where we left off last week and see if we can, first of all, learn to better identify the progression of sin in our own lives and also how to effectively stop it when we find ourselves going down that path. Okay, so we're going to begin at Genesis chapter 3. And we'll read the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So after being fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God and given authority and dominion over the rest of all of creation, Adam and Eve act on the advice of a snake rather than on the command of God himself, of course, bringing a curse down upon the earth and all of its inhabitants. Now, at a cursory glance, what Adam and Eve seems to us to be preposterous, right? You're living in the most desirable place on earth with the very best of everything in perfect harmony with God and each other and the world around you. You have authority over the earth, access to the creator, and not one single imperfection to have to mitigate in your life. And along comes a slimy, slithering, creepy, fork-tongued snake who convinces you to do the one thing that God told you not to do. At least that's how it is often portrayed in art and film and other literature today. And yet when you look a little closer, you find that not quite to be the case. In fact, not at all. 
what Adam and Eve were doing, with the, what they were doing with the serpent in the garden. It's something that every single one of us is guilty of doing many, many times in our own lives. They were simply entertaining temptation. From, by the way, what seemed to be a very natural and innocuous, uh, harmless source, which is always the first step in our own progression towards sin as well. First of all, when verse 1 says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The word crafty is the ancient Hebrew word arum, which does not carry uh, the negative moral connotations as the words crafty or cunning do in our English language today. The original meaning here is actually much closer to prudent or sensible, even shrewd. And although the serpent is not directly identified here as Satan, he is in Job 26, 13, Isaiah 51, 9, Revelation 12, 9, and Revelation 22. And interestingly, uh, in the study of comparative religion, we find in other ancient Near Eastern literature that the serpent was always understood to be a shining divine being. In fact, a member of God's heavenly host or council in serpentine appearance. Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarna says that throughout the ancient world, the serpent was endowed with divine or semi-divine qualities. It was venerated as an emblem of health, fertility, immortality, occult wisdom, and chaotic evil, and it was often worshipped. The serpent played a significant role in the mythology, the religious symbolism, and the cults of the ancient Near East. In fact, in ancient Egypt, uh, the serpent was believed to be a wise and even magical creature. In fact, uh, Wajet, that's the name of the patron goddess of Lower Egypt, was represented on Pharaoh's crown as a snake and became the symbol of the king's power. There are many other Hebrew scholars who maintain that the word serpent, nakash, in the ancient Hebrew originally meant shining, upright creature, which makes sense, of course, uh, in light of how Satan is described, not only in all of this other ancient Near Eastern literature that we have, but in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17, which says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So of all the creatures, this serpent was the most sensible, the most prudent, the most full of wisdom and perfectly beautiful of all of them. Not at all the picture that is portrayed in paintings of the creepy snake slithering down the tree and whispering in Eve's ear. No, this was a beautiful, highly intelligent, level-headed, articulate, and probably upright creature who was approaching Adam and Eve for what appeared to be some friendly conversation in a beautiful garden. You understand, to Adam and Eve, 
This would have seemed completely natural in a place like Eden, having a conversation with a creature that looks and sounds wonderful. It would have been anything but threatening or, or creepy or menacing. It was a perfect day in a perfect place as this perfectly beautiful and intelligent creature comes over to Adam and Eve, two perfect human beings, to talk about the perfect trees in their perfect garden. But listen... Temptation always looks and sounds good. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting, would it? To Adam and Eve, this was just another perfect day in paradise, having a harmless conversation with a wonderful creature who even begins to quote God himself, sort of. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And before we get to the actual quote itself, it is significant to note here that when the serpent says the name God, he deliberately avoids using the personal name of God, which is Yahweh or Lord, which God is appropriately referred to throughout the rest of this chapter after this conversation between Eve and the serpent. So he deliberately dishonors God's name because temptation always dishonors the name of God. Okay, when it comes to recognizing the progression of sin in our own lives, this is one of the litmus tests that you should always use if you're ever not sure about something or someone that may be a temptation for you to sin. Does whatever I'm about to listen to or engage in or be a part of, does it bring honor or dishonor to the name of God? And that, I understand that may sound uh, subjective to you but honestly it's not all that hard to answer that question when you're actually faced with temptation simply ask yourself whatever I'm about to engage in that conversation or that action or that relationship or that participation in something would I want to make sure that everyone present everyone around me knows that I'm a Christian right before I do whatever it is I'm about to do or would I rather the people who are there not know that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Because whatever it is you're considering being a part of, if it brings glory to his name, you'll not only have no problem with people knowing you're a Christian, but you will actually want people to understand that he is the reason you're doing it to begin with, so that he gets all the glory and not you. Well, on the other hand, if it dishonors his name, you won't want anyone who is there to know that you're a Christian because no one wants to be a hypocrite. And look, I'll just tell you, I'm so convicted when I look back at my own life and think about all of the things that I've done and said that have brought dishonor to God's name because I entertained temptation. In fact, I... Uh, I hear people all the time, all the time, I hear people talking about having no regrets. And listen, I understand what they mean by that, but look, I have more regrets than I could write in a book. I deeply regret everything I've ever done or said that has brought dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what happens when you entertain temptation. And so the key is to recognize it for what it is, even when it looks good and even when it sounds good. If it is going to dishonor the name of Christ, then don't entertain it. Don't engage in it. Don't continue to even consider it. Simply walk away, even when everything inside of you wants to stay. It's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
No one ever said it was going to be easy. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite. Temptation always looks good. It always sounds good. And yet it always dishonors the name of Christ. Denying what you want in deference for what he wants, that is the way of Christ. See, Adam and Eve should have picked up on the certain slight against the name, the serpent's slight against the name of God. They should have picked up on that, but they didn't. They continued to entertain his temptation. He said to the woman, did God actually say you? And uh, by the way, the you there in the Hebrew is plural. So he's referring to both Adam and Eve. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, what God actually said in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 was, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So Satan dis, uh, deliberately misquotes God, twisting his words in order to try and get Adam and Eve to begin questioning God's own word, which was spoken directly to them, which makes perfect sense because temptation always contradicts the word of God. It's the oldest trick up our enemy's sleeve to contradict the word of God by misusing the word of God in a way that looks good and in a way that sounds good, which is exactly what he tried to do with Jesus during his 40 days in the wilderness. It is exactly what he tried to do through the false teachers in the New Testament church, which we just saw in our last sermon series in Hebrews. And it is exactly what he is still doing today all throughout Christendom because it is a lot easier for us to reject a complete fallacy than it is to reject a half-truth. Half-truths are always easier to spread and they're always easier to accept because they look good and they sound good. The fact is, temptation always looks good and sounds good and it almost always begins in the form of a half-truth. Just enough truth to make it seem reasonable, to make it look good, to make it sound good. But if you look close enough, you'll find that temptation ultimately contradicts God's word every time. So the serpent now dishonors God's name and misquotes God's word in the same conversation, which should have been two giant red flags now to Adam and Eve. And yet they allow the conversation to continue. And in the process, they continue to entertain the temptation of the enemy. The difference is, at this point, the difference is we now know that they knew better. We know that now they knew well and good that what this serpent was doing and what he was saying was wrong. And we know that because Eve tries to correct him. And the woman said, you see, Eve willingly entered into conversation with the enemy when she should have resisted him and simply walked away. James, the brother of Jesus, said, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you, James 4, 7. You see, right then and there, Eve should have slammed the door in the devil's face, but instead she continued to entertain his temptation by entering into conversation with him as she tries to correct his error in quoting God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, which is not what God said, lest you die. Some would say here that Eve did the right thing, that she was simply defending the word of the Lord. But if that was her motivation, then it should have come with a warning. 
The Apostle Paul said, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Titus 3, 10 and 11. In Romans 16, 17 and 18, he says, I appeal, appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The Apostle John said, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 2 John 1, 10 and 11. Listen, as Christians, we are under absolutely no obligation whatsoever to entertain false teaching. And yet in the modern church, we consume it like it's manna from heaven. Why do we do that? Because it looks good and it sounds good. And of course, there are times, yes, when the Holy Spirit may lead us to confront an evil spirit operating in a, a false teacher or a heretic or a, a demon possessed, but by far and away, the preponderance of Scripture instructs us to stay away from those who would mislead us, who would teach us false doctrine, who would twist God's words and by doing so intentionally create division in the church. As we just read, we are to have nothing to do with them, not even to greet them, he says. So look, anyone who is earnestly seeking the truth no matter their religious affiliation or their background or their station in life, anyone who is honestly seeking the truth is welcome in this church. If someone who follows another doctrine uh, or another religion wants to come here because they're seeking the truth, then of course they're welcome here with open arms. The truth is we want all who would seek the truth to come here and to find it in Christ. But listen, to those who come here with an agenda specifically to twist God's word and mislead this family of believers into following a false gospel or a false religion, which by the way has happened more than once, they are not welcome here. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. But much of the church has rejected this teaching, at least in the West, where we devour just about every new philosophy about Jesus and the Bible that comes our way, as long as it looks good and sounds good, as if the church is supposed to be some kind of melting pot for new and alternative ideas about Jesus, as long as those ideas validate our feelings about ourselves. No! No! No, we're the bride of Christ, given to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish 
Ephesians 5.27, it's not that we can't have new ideas or even new ways of teaching the unchanging gospel. And for what it's worth, of course, there is a lot of new teaching and new material that comes out every year that is good, that honors the name of God and the word of God. The point is, we need to be able to discern between the two. Author and scholar Cornelius Plantinga says, Satan must appeal to our God-given appetite for goodness in order to win his way. To prevail, evil must leech not only power and intelligence from goodness, but also its credibility. From counterfeit money to phony airliner parts to the trustworthy look on the face of a con artist, evil appears in disguise. Hence its treacherousness. Hence the need for the Holy Spirit's gift of discernment. Hence the sheer difficulty at times of distinguishing what is good from what is evil. It is so important today that we learn how to identify philosophies and teachings that contradict the word of God. Because anyone can take a passage of scripture or a selection of carefully chosen scriptures and create an entire narrative about Jesus or the Christian faith that is contrary to what Jesus himself taught. And of course, there are men and women who are constantly doing that very thing. And the better it looks and the better it sounds, the more Christians follow them. This is one of the reasons that we preach and teach through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Old Testament and New Testament here at our church until we work through the entire Bible. Listen, it's not because, uh, it's not because that's the only right way to preach. It's not because you can't be effective some other way. And it's not because I'm some kind of fabulous teacher. No, it's because I'm a human being. And left to my own devices, it would be very easy for me to entertain the temptation to selectively choose to preach through the passages of the Bible that I really like and avoid the ones that I really don't like. And what you end up with when you do that at best is an incomplete gospel message and at worst, a false doctrine. And yet that's exactly what's happening in some churches today. Because when you refuse to teach the whole counsel of God, as Paul refers to it in Acts 20, 27, you're teaching an incomplete picture of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do for this world. So how do we know the difference then? How do we know whether someone is teaching the truth or some alternative version of the truth? Well, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Now listen. Most fruit doesn't grow overnight. Right? It grows over a season. And so if you encounter a new teaching 
a new perspective on the gospel, a new philosophy about Jesus, an alternative way of interpreting the scriptures, whatever it is, you should take your time before deciding to entertain that teaching or that perspective or that philosophy or that alternate interpretation. Take your time and watch the fruit that comes over it, out of it, excuse me, over time, before you decide to follow it, no matter how good it looks or how good it sounds. Take your time and watch the fruit that it produces. Does it address the whole counsel of God or just one aspect of the scriptures? Does it build up the church or does it mock the church? Does it acknowledge our need for holiness or simply our desire for happiness? Does it honor the complete canon of scripture or does it seek to add or take away from the scriptures through new revelations given to the author or producer of that new material? Does it affirm God's word as objective truth? In other words, when uh, referencing a passage of scripture, it asks the question, what does this passage of scripture mean? Or does it leave room in the scriptures for subjective reasoning and personal interpretation? In other words, it asks the question, what does this passage of scripture mean to me? Because listen, the scriptures mean whatever God wrote them to mean, not whatever we would like for them to mean. When you take time to watch the fruit that a new teaching or a new perspective or a new philosophy or a new interpretation produces, I'm telling you at some point if you pay attention, you will be able to tell whether it confirms or contradicts the word of God. And of course, sometimes it doesn't take that long at all. Sometimes it doesn't take that long at all. It takes much longer for fruit to grow and develop and be healthy than it does for it to rot. Eve knew immediately that what the serpent was saying was wrong. And yet she continued to entertain his temptation. Unless you think I'm picking on Eve here to the exclusion of Adam, by the way. He was right there with her. He should have stood up for his wife and defended her by leading her out of harm's way. Instead, he did nothing. They both allowed the serpent to continue tempting them. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, who is God to tell you that only he should have the knowledge of good and evil? Make no mistake about it. This was a direct challenge to the authority of God. Of course, there are elements of this statement by the serpent that are true. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they don't die, at least not immediately. Their eyes were opened in ways they previously hadn't been. For the first time, they understood they were naked. And of course, they knew good and evil, for they hid from God after eating the fruit, knowing that what they'd done was wrong. There was definitely some truth in the serpent's statement, but it was only half truth. Not only did he not tell them everything else that would happen to them when they ate the fruit, being expelled from the garden, having to toil for their food, no longer having the same access to the Creator and suffering in death, albeit many years away. The serpent was dealing in half-truths as always, and yet it was more than that. He was not only dishonoring the name of God and contradicting the word of God, but by essentially calling God a liar in verse four and an insecure, selfish ruler in verse five, the serpent was directly challenging the authority of God, which should come as no surprise really, because temptation always challenges the authority of God. 
plays into our human nature. You know why? Because we all want Jesus. We just want him on our own terms. We have no problem with his love in our lives. We have no problem with his strength in our lives. We have no problem with his peace in our lives. We have no problem with his joy in our lives. We have no problem with his freedom in our lives. It's his authority in our lives that rubs us the wrong way. Because his authority in our lives gets in the way of us doing the things that look good and sound good to us. This is one of the reasons that alternative gospel messages often become so popular so quickly. Because if they can invalidate the less popular truth claims in God's word, then they can invalidate the less popular aspects of God's authority in our lives. Which means we can focus more on what we want and less on what God wants without any sense of conviction whatsoever. But listen, all that you have to do to see that challenging God's authority in your life ultimately doesn't work is to take a good look around at our society today. Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy Wright, all of the ideologies, all the utopian promises that have marked this century have proven utterly bankrupt. Americans have achieved what modernism presented as life's great shining purpose, individual autonomy, the right to do what one chooses. Yet this has not produced the promised freedom. Instead, it has led to the loss of community and civility, to kids shooting kids in schoolyards, to citizens huddling in gated communities for protection. We have discovered that we cannot live with the chaos that inevitably results from choice divorced from morality. The fact is, you will never fully experience the love and strength and peace and joy and freedom that Christ has put in you until you fully submit to the authority that he rightfully has over you. Right? How effective would a military be if there was no authority? Rich, you were a Marine. If every soldier was permitted to do whatever he or she thought was best, how many battles do you think that military would win? Not one. How effective are families where there's no authority? Listen, our prisons are absolutely full of people who will tell you that they grew up without any authority in their lives. I know because I spent years working with prisoners on a regular basis. How effective are local churches who refuse to submit to the authority of God's word? They conform to the culture instead of transforming it. The truth is, nothing in this world works like it should or like it could without authority also working in it, and neither will your life. And yet when you entertain temptation, you're directly challenging his authority in your life. The authority that you need for your life to be all that it should be and all that it could be if you were submitted to it. And listen, uh, submitting your life to his authority is probably one of the hardest things that most of us will ever do. Because it means swallowing your pride. It means denying yourself. It means giving up your own dreams when they don't line up with his plans. Submitting your life to God's authority means accepting the authority of his word over your life, all of it, even the parts you don't like. 
It means loving like he loved, even when we don't feel like it. It means giving like he gave, even when you don't think you should have to. It means forgiving like he forgave, even though you don't want to. It means putting others before yourself, even when they don't deserve it. It means serving his purposes in your life instead of your own. Submitting your life to God's authority means giving him every ounce of yourself unreservedly. And you know, that is our enemy's greatest fear. So he uses temptation to try and make us believe that we're taking back control of our lives. That's what Adam and Eve thought they were doing. They thought they were taking control when actually they were giving it away to the one person whose sole desire was to destroy them. It's exactly what we're doing when we entertain temptation in our own lives. Of course, of course, temptation never shows you what's at the end of the path that it is leading you down because if it did, no one would be foolish enough to follow it. Temptation always looks good. It always sounds good. But at the end of the day, it dishonors God. It contradicts his word and it challenges his authority in your life. And as we'll see in the second half of this message, left unchecked, temptation leads to sin that will devastate your life. Yet it all starts when we entertain the temptations that every one of us has to face at times in our own lives. And yet, not only do you have the power to stop it, but you're the only one who can. Do you understand? God knew that the serpent was tempting Adam and Eve. He knew exactly what he was doing, exactly what was happening when it was happening. God heard every word of it. Well, why didn't God step in? Why didn't he stop that conversation? Why didn't he put the serpent in his place and put Adam and Eve back on track? It's because we have free will. And he doesn't violate that. So he allows us and only us to make that choice. You see, it wasn't the serpent who separated Adam and Eve from God. It was their choice to sin and theirs alone. That's why you're as close to God in your life right now as you want to be. Because there's only one person in all of the earth or in heaven above or even in hell below who's been granted the ability to choose to keep you away from God and that person is you. And so, listen, if you're far from Jesus Christ today, all you have to do is draw near to him and he will draw near to you. That is his promise to fulfill. But it is your choice to make. Let's pray.